0: Are you able
1: to record? We oh, have it. Hey. hey, everybody, and welcome to Scottsdale big book study, where we will study the big book of Alcoholics Anonymous. My name is Maria F, and I'm a recovered compulsive overeater, and I'm from County Dublin in Ireland, and I'll be your host for today's study. If you have any questions or concerns during the meeting, please contact either myself or any of the co-hosts, and you can do this by private message in the chat function. And please note that our speaker today, Carlin G, will be recorded for the duration of the study. However, the question and answer session, which follows, that won't be recorded. And we can ask if you could please keep your microphones on mute at all times during today's study. And also please turn off your video if you're exercising or you need to eat or you need to step away from the screen for any reason, please just disconnect your camera. The chat will be disabled while Harlan's speaking. We'll open up the chat again when we go to Q&A. We'll also mute all the lines so that we we don't have interference during the meeting. So when it comes to Q&A, we'll send you a request to unmute yourself. So over to Harlan G. Good morning, Harlan.
0: Good morning, Maria. Thank you so much. I'm so honored to be here. I'm so glad to be here. It is February the 5th, 2022. Can you believe that we have been doing this now for over a year. Uh, we've been doing this now for, for quite some time and it's just just wonderful. I'm so honored. I hope it's beautiful where you are, whether you're listening on a podcast or you're listening live. I hope you're having a great day as well. We are going to get into the blood and guts of step one this morning. We are going to examine what it is that sets the compulsive overeater apart from the normal eater, we are going to do an examination of everything that is step one this morning. And we're going to do that by getting back into the doctor's opinion. But before we move forward, as is my want and as as we do, we're gonna look backward for just a little bit here so we can sort of get a roll going. We can sort of roll into today with a good uh, background. We have been talking about the doctor's opinion who is this doctor? This doctor is Dr. William Duncan Silkworth, commonly referred to as Silky or the little doctor who loved drunks. And Dr. Silkworth was a neurologist in New York City and he was just a bit over in the stock market. And he was a bit over And on October the 29th, 1929, Black Tuesday, he lost a lot of money in the crash of the stock market. And as such, it was very difficult for him to make ends meet. And as such, he went to his friend Charlie Towns. And Charles Towns owned and operated the Towns Hospital in New York City, which at that time was the preeminent drying out hospital for wealthy New Yorkers. Lots of actors, lots of socialites, lots of people with money would go over to 293 Central Park West in Manhattan and they would dry out there under Dr. Towns. And Dr. Towns had developed the belladonna treatment. What is the belladonna treatment? Well, I'll tell you what it is. The belladonna Belladonna is essentially a poison. If you consume belladonna, you will die. If you consume it in, in, in an amount that's lethal, you will die. Belladonna though, when it's cut with certain other chemicals, belladonna will act as a barbiturate in the system. And what would happen is a lot of these guys, when they were under the uh, influence of delirium tremens, you know, the shaking that these guys get, uh, it was very hard to dry them out. The heart is a muscle. And if the heart is affected by these delirium tremens, you'll die. So he developed this belladonna treatment, which calmed, the drunk down enough so that they could uh, get, they could dry out safely. And he had this treatment. Well, Dr. Silkworth went to work in November of nineteen uh, twenty-nine. Excuse me, nineteen twenty-nine, as the medical director of Towns Hospital, and between nineteen twenty-nine and nineteen thirty-four, as the medical director of Towns, he observed. Thousands and thousands of people that came in and out of that hospital. Not all of them were alcoholics, mind you. They were people that got in trouble with alcohol. Is everybody that gets drunk an alcoholic? No. Is everybody that eats compulsively a compulsive overeater? No. There are people that get into trouble with food. They may eat a little too much, they may gain some weight. They, but they are not compulsive overeaters. What is it that sets apart this group? Well, he, he observed these people, thousands of them coming in and out, <clears throat> excuse me. And with no, hold on one second. <clears throat> That's better, thanks. Uh, with no scientific backing through sheer observation, Dr. Silkworth, he formulated an opinion, and this was his opinion that there were two primary characteristics that set the alcoholic apart from the heavy drinker or the moderate drinker. And what would happen is he would see primarily men. I'm going to use the pronoun I'm going to use the pronoun people. That's less confusing. I'm going to use the pronoun people because not all alcoholics are men, not all alcoholics are women, not all compulsive overeaters. It's not a gender thing but let's take a look at the people that he uh, observed going in and out of the town's hospital. These guys, these people, sorry, these people would come in in terrible shape from drinking and they would medically treat them and they would feed them and they would rest them up and they would, you know, get them some mild exercise, whatever that might be. And then Some of them would leave and they would never come back. They got into trouble with liquor. They learned their lesson. They got their slap on the hand. They said liquor is not something you can play with very often. So they stopped. They never came back. But here's the big but. I'm in sales and we're taught ignore everything before the but. If you say I really like that car but I'm not going to buy it, just ignore everything before the but. Okay, fine. He noticed that about 10% of the people that came in and out of town's hospital, they had a very different relationship with liquor. And their relationship, he observed, had two components to it. Number 1, for the first time in history History, he attributed a physical component to this alcoholic character, the alcoholic personality, the alcoholic person, the physical. Allergy. He called it an allergy. This word allergy is very misunderstood because we say, oh, well, I don't have an allergy to sugar because when I eat sugar, I don't break out in a rash. I don't break out in hives. I don't get itchy, watery eyes. No, that's not what it means. When you look up the word allergy in any good dictionary, here is one of the definitions that you will find an adverse abnormal reaction. Adverse means it's harmful. Abnormal means most people do not react that way. And Dr. Silkworth is gonna tell us that any description of the alcoholic, which leaves out this physical factor is incomplete. Now, why is this so groundbreaking? Because never before, never before in the history of the world was there a physical component attached to a condition of alcoholism. It was always thought of as weak will, low self-esteem, lack of discipline, lack of faith, lack of character, lack of willpower. That's what it was attributed to. So never before in the history of the world was there a physical component attached to this. And he cited this physical allergy and that allergy is an adverse abnormal reaction. Now, when I eat M&Ms with peanuts, something happens in my body that does not happen in the normal person. When I eat M&Ms with peanuts, there's sugar in there and there's fat in there and there's all kinds of other ingredients in there. But the most lethal to me is the sugar. And when I eat sugar, something happens in my body that most people do not experience. What is it? What is the manifestation of that allergy? There will be in my body an actual physical craving for more of the same. And the more M&Ms I eat, the more of them I want. And the more I want, the more I eat, the more I eat, the more I want, and it's just endless. That craving is attributed to the physical allergy. Now there's something else that Dr. Silkworth observed, and this is what it is. He observed that in the mind of a compulsive overeater, in the mind of an alcoholic, in the mind of a gambler, a drug addict, in the mind of any addict, there is an inability to recall with sufficient force the consequences of eating that M&M with peanuts. And I do not see anything wrong with it. And as we're going to be talking about in just a few minutes, there is something that takes place in my brain that does not take place in the brain of a normal eater. And that is called the effect. And we're going to get into that in just a minute. In other words, food, fried food sugar food breaded food um, uh, dairy for me now when I talk about the foods that give me these this allergy or that I am not I am not discussing you I am discussing me these are the things that I cannot eat with safety that does not mean that that translates to you so I want to be very very clear I am not in any way, shape, or form discussing a food that you should avoid or that you may have a problem with. I am only discussing things I have a problem with so I can illustrate my point. If I couldn't do that, then it's harder for me to illustrate the point. So please do not in the questions and answers or anything say, well, you said you can't eat dairy, but I can. Am I wrong? No, you're not wrong. You're fine. I can't eat dairy. I can't eat sugar. I can't eat French fries. I can't eat fried food. I can't do that, but maybe you can. I am not here to be your judge and jury, and it is not up to me what you should or should not eat at any given juncture of life. It's not up to me. Well, my brain wants me to eat these things because these things give me an effect, and we're going to get into that in just a minute. So he observed that there's a physical component and that there is a mental component. A little later on, not today, but a little later on when we get to chapter three, we're also going to learn that there are three characteristics of addiction that Dr. Silkworth really didn't touch on. The three characteristics are an addiction is permanent, progressive, and fatal, permanent, progressive what does progressive mean it means it gets worse over time whether i am eating or not and that we will learn that abstinence does not treat the disease only a spiritual awakening will treat this disease permanent progressive and if left untreated fatal There is no way that my body and mind will be able to withstand the onslaught of this disease and everything that it rocks into a life for very long. I was to the point where I couldn't walk. I was to the point where I couldn't sit in a chair. I was to the point where I couldn't lay flat and breathe. I was to the point where my mind and body craved death as much as it craved anything else. And I would beg God to kill me on a daily basis. I knew I couldn't live with the food. And at that time I had no idea that I could ever live without the food. So there seemed to be no no way that I could live in this world free of the food. So let's take a look at page X, X, V, I, I, I. That's X, X, V, I, I, I. So let's take a look at that. We're in the doctor's opinion. And we are going to start with, if any feel that as psychiatrists directing a hospital for alcoholics, we appear somewhat sentimental. I'll give you a second to get to that page. XXV. X, X, v, I, 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 or 28 in Roman numerals. That's 28 in Roman numerals. Okay, let's continue. If any feel that a psychiatrist directing a hospital for alcoholics, we appear somewhat sentimental. Let them stand with us a while on the firing line. See the tragedies, the despairing wives, the little children. Let the solving of these problems become a part of their daily work. And even of their sleeping moments, and the most cynical will not wonder that we have accepted and encouraged this movement now he is confessing something that he's already told us on the previous page, that he as a doctor is as powerless over the alcoholic as the alcoholic is powerless over the alcohol, which is a very, very important concept. He as a doctor knows what's wrong with you. He knows that you have this physical allergy He knows that you have this twist of the mind. The term mental obsession is never used in the big book. So I tend not to use it. That is an expression that he that Bill Wilson will introduce to us in the 12 and 12, which was written in 1950 uh, in in in, he wrote that in Bedford Hills, 1951. He will write that in Bedford Hills, New York, at his home in Stepping Stones, which many of us have been to. But that isn't going to come about until more than 10 years later. So for the sake of a big book study, I will use the term mental twist rather than mental obsession. But as long as we started talking about obsession, I'm just gonna say, what is an obsession? An obsession is a thought which pushes aside all thought to the contrary or all other thought. I'm obsessed with bowling or I'm obsessed with a girl or I'm obsessed with money or whatever that may be. I become very, very laser focused and I find it difficult to to think about anything else. So that's what that obsession means. But for the sake of a big book study, I'm gonna use the term mental twist, okay? So he is confessing that he is powerless even though he is very sad to see the wives, the children, anybody that's related to an alcoholic, either by blood or marriage, is in a situation where they are going to suffer. My mother and father did not agree on much. Oh, did they fight like cats and dogs? Holy mackerel. I've never even seen them be very nice to each other during my life. And I think that kind of screwed me up a little bit too. But here's what I will tell you. My mother and father could agree on one thing, We have got to do something about Harlan's weight. He is out of control. Look how much food he's eating. Now, this is the time of year where I saw my drug pushers the other day at the grocery store. They were wearing their brown dresses and their green dresses, and they were selling this dope in boxes right outside the grocery store. They had the cocaine labeled as Thin Mints. They had the heroin labeled as uh, Tagalongs. They had the whatever labeled as whatever else they have. I don't know, but they had Thin Mints and Tagalongs and they had all kinds of drugs on their little table and they were so cute, and I gave them $5, and I said, I can't eat cookies, but I'll give you $5 for your troop, and they were so appreciative. They didn't know what to do. They didn't just didn't know what to do, but I am not going to eat Girl Scout cookies, because for the love of God, there isn't enough Girl Scout Thin Mints in the world to satisfy me. Once I start eating Thin Mints, once I start eating Girl Scout cookies, Lord knows I I can't stop. Oh my god, it's 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 an obsession for it's, it's a, a disease all its own. And you know they're so cute and they used to come to your house and ring the bell. They don't let them do that anymore. Thank God. Thank God they don't do that anymore because Lord only knows whose door you're knocking on. But anyway, so He, as a doctor, Dr. Silkworth is saying, I feel your pain. I feel your heartbreak, but there's nothing I can do. And to this day, medical science, they can drug me and they did when I was nine years old. 1963, I was put on heavy duty amphetamines. And there were doctors who wanted to cut into me and do the, they didn't have the gastric bypass then. I don't think they had something else they had where they would cut your staple. They would staple your stomach. That's what they would do. Staple your stomach. They wanted to staple me. They wanted to this, they wanted to that. Thank God you know, whatever, my life went a different way. If you had those things done to you, I am not judging you. I am not voicing an opinion on what you did. It's your business, it's your story, it's your life, it's fine, it's fine. I was on amphetamines. I was put on them in 1963. And I continued once Marilyn Monroe died, and some of the information started rolling out of California that some of these diet pills may not be exactly kosher or safe. They changed me from a pink pill that you took three times a day to a blue pill that you took four times a day, I think, or five, four times a day with exactly the same kind of situation, there was no difference to it at all whatsoever. But anyway, my story was they drugged me rather than cut into me or whatever. It had a very nice weight loss. But the weight loss, again, did not treat the disease. Okay, let's continue because we've got a lot of ground to cover today. We feel after many years of experience that we have found nothing which has contributed more to the rehabilitation of these men than the altruistic movement now growing up among them. What is an altruistic movement? An altruistic movement is a movement that Dr. Silkworth observed in 1934, 35, 36, 37. He wrote this letter, He wrote these letters, plural, there's a few of them, in 1937, June of 37 and October of 37 is when he wrote this down. And he observed, as I say, this Oxford group movement, Ebby, Bill Wilson, Fitzmao, Hank Parkhurst, Jimmy Burwell, he observed these guys, now Burwell was an atheist, raving atheist, but he observed these guys and he saw that as long as they practiced this altruism, the urge to drink just wasn't there. What is altruism? Altruism is giving to another with no thought of reciprocity, return, anything. It is giving to another with no thought of reciprocity. That's what altruism is. And Frank Buckman, who founded the Oxford Group movement, he wanted to not cure alcoholism or not give a remedy to alcoholism. That was not something that was on his radar. Alcoholism had nothing to do with what he was trying to do what he tried to do, and we're gonna get a lot more into the Oxford group when we study Bill's story. But the Oxford group movement were people who were practicing first century Christianity to the best of their ability. And Buckman believed that many Christians had lost their enthusiasm for Christ. They had lost their enthusiasm. Now there's a good word, Enthusiasm. It comes from two Greek words, enthechos, from God. Enthusiasm comes from two Greek words, enthechos, from God. So he realized that these people had lost their zeal, their enthusiasm, for christ for christianity and that early christians were willing to go and die for christ and modern christians had just not had that level of dedication he went to china on a ministry now he was he was from pennsylvania but his he was practicing in near oxford in england but he went to China on a mission and he saw enthusiasm such as that this is what he had been dreaming about. Now, what set these missionaries in China apart from the people that he was working with in England? Altruism. They were giving of themselves to other people. And in giving of themselves to other people, they in turn rekindled this enthusiasm for their Christianity. And this is where Dr. Silkworth is observing that the Oxford group movement is a movement of altruism. Very, very important. What is at the core of the Alcoholics Anonymous program? What is at the very core of it? What do we learn from from A to Z? what do we learn? That nothing will guarantee immunity from drinking so much as intensive work with other alcoholics. We cannot do the work once in a while. We must play the good Samaritan every day. It is the purpose of this, excuse me, our real purpose is to fit ourselves to be of maximum service to God and the people about us. Now I could go on and on and quote chapter and verse about what we're supposed to do to be of service to other people. But I think you get the point, you're intelligent enough to get the point. What is the point? The point is to get to the point of this 12th step as quickly and efficiently as possible. So you can can give to other people. Clancy Immislin is one of my personal heroes he's one of my favorite speakers i'm just so sorry that he's gone now he accomplished so much but there was so much left for him to do and it's just unfortunate that he's gone now but clancy immislin said at the north scottsdale fellowship club i was there he came here twice he was so cute he wore his suit and a tie it was so it was so blazing hot it must have been a hundred and 18, 120 degrees, and there he is in a white shirt, buttoned to the top, with a tie, and a jacket, and a a freshly pressed pair of dress pants. He looked so cute. He got up there, and he was talking, and the one thing I remember about him saying was, we do not get this program by absorbing spiritual information. We get this program by transmitting spiritual information. And we need to transmit that spiritual information. Clancy Immislin was the founder of the Pacific Group in Los Angeles. That is the largest AA group in the world. And Clancy Immislin was The founder of this group. I spoke in Brentwood at that very church where they met, where they meet, and I was very honored to occupy that same pulpit that he spoke from many times to the Pacific group in Los Angeles, California. But he said, You will not get this program by absorbing spiritual information, you get this program by transmitting spiritual information. Now, if the big book of Alcoholics Anonymous was a building instead of a book, the cornerstone of this building would be the next paragraph that we're gonna read. And in the next paragraph that we're going to read is more insight and more explanation of who we are and what we do and why we do it than is found anywhere else on planet earth of which I am aware. And we're going to take this next paragraph piecemeal and we're going to examine the paragraph and then we're going to move forward, but we're going to take our time. Let's look at the bottom of page XXVIII. That's 28 in Roman numerals. And the very first sentence is men and women drink essentially because they like the effect produced by alcohol. You know, in chapter three, we're going to find that this is a form of insanity, This is a form of mental illness. Now, I don't like to think of myself as being insane. I don't like to think of myself as being mentally ill. But what other explanation could you possibly come up with when a boy like me, who was 335 pounds as a senior in high school, I was physically and emotionally emasculated by this disease by age 12, 13. I went on my first date with a girl when I was 35 years old. I had physical problems. I had all kinds of problems that this disease wrought into my life from the time I was a child. Why in the world would anybody who has suffered at the hands of this disease, why would I continue to eat the very foods that have caused me this problem since I was a little child in diapers? And what I was chasing was not food. What I wanted was not food. What I wanted was the effect. And what is the effect? The effect is a sense of ease and comfort that comes instantly over me when I eat certain foods. When I eat chocolate, when I eat fried foods, when I eat cake or pizza, something happens in my mind. Not we're, we're forget the body for right now. Forget that for right now. Something happens in my mind that does not happen for the normal temperate eater. In my mind, that food will produce an effect. The effect is a sense of ease and comfort that comes instantly over me when I eat the food. Nothing works as efficiently or quickly as food to settle me down, to make me feel like I can go on another day. Nothing is swages my emotions as efficiently as food. It works. And when it works, it works beautifully. What I was chasing, I did not want to get fatter. People asked me my whole life, do you know how fat you are? And why would you eat that knowing how fat you are? And I had no answer for them. The only answer I had for them was that I didn't know. But what I know now is that pizza did something for me that nothing else did. That effect was what I was looking for. Let's continue. But that effect is half the disease And it is something we're going to talk about more, but we're going to continue for right now. The sensation is so elusive, that means it's hard to grab, that while they admit it is injurious, they cannot, after a time, differentiate the true from the false. Let's stop right there. This feeling, this effect is so elusive. What does that mean? You can't hang on to it. It's like the elusive butterfly or the elusive myth of something, you know? You can't hang on to it. I'm chasing that feeling that only lasts about nine seconds, 10 seconds, tops. And what it says here is while they admit it is injurious, in other words, I know at some level that I'm killing myself. I know at some level that I wanna be thought of by women as attractive. I wanna be thought of by women as somebody that maybe they would go on a date with. I want to be thought of by men as somebody that they can respect. And I most of all wanted, most of all wanted to be thought of by me as someone that I could respect because I had only loathing for myself. I had only hatred for myself. I had only horrible feelings about myself. And i 5,008 million occasions, I lied right to my own face. I would swear to God, I would swear oaths to God that I'm never gonna eat that way again. And on a thousand different occasions, no, 10,000 different occasions, no, 50,000 occasions, I would eat the very food that I swore to God I wasn't gonna eat, and there was my car pulling into the donut shop, pulling into McDonald's, pulling into Burger King, whatever that may be. And there I was eating that very food again. Was I crazy? Yes. But what was I looking for? I was looking for the effect. I was not looking to get fatter. I never rubbed my hands together and said, wow, today I'm going to get even fatter. No, I didn't do that. What I said today was life sucks. I'm scared. I'm angry. I don't know how I'm gonna pay my bills. Does that girl, do I have any chance with that girl? Do I have any chance with that girl? Does that girl like me? No, I doubt it. Does that person think I'm a, a good person? Probably not. And so when all these feelings would start swirling around in my brain, I went to the one thing that I knew would make it right, and that was food. Even though I didn't know it intellectually, my brain knew, my brain knew that this was the answer to my problem. So let's examine that and let's examine what we're talking about in the next sentence here. We admit we're killing ourselves. We cannot differentiate the true from the false. What does that mean? Does it mean that I think today's Thursday? No. Does that mean I think that I'm a a soldier in the Korean army? No. What it means is I cannot differentiate the true from the false, meaning this time I'm just going to eat one donut. When have I ever eaten just one donut? Answer, never. This time I'm just going to have one piece of pizza. When have I ever had just one piece of pizza? Never. This time I'm just going to have one cookie. When have I ever eaten one cookie? Never. Never. So this is, I cannot differentiate the true from the false. Let's continue. To them, their alcoholic life seems the only normal one. In other words, to me, what I'm doing seems normal and natural. Don't other people eat entire buckets of Kentucky Fried Chicken and throw the bones out the window on Lakeshore Drive and then throw the container out the window on Lakeshore Drive? No, they do not. Don't other people eat donuts by the dozen and throw the box out the window? No, they do not. Don't other people, when they buy a Hershey bar, they don't buy the small ones for a dime. They buy the ones that cost $3.50, the great big ones, and they buy a bunch of them. No, they do not, but I do, or did. Thank God I don't do it anymore, shouldn't say that. I did, and to me, this seemed normal and natural. I cannot differentiate the true from the false. To them, their alcoholic life seems the only normal one. They are restless, irritable, and discontented unless they can again experience the sense of ease and comfort, which comes at once by taking a few drinks, drinks which they see others taking with impunity. And impunity comes from the word punis, which means to punish and other people do not get punished when they eat. They just eat and there seems to be no consequence. Now, we're gonna pull this apart further. For the life that I've lived through most of my life, most of my life, I have believed that food was the problem and weight was the problem. And I believed that if I would stop eating so much food and my weight came down, that my problem would be solved. I bet I'm not the only one here who has believed that. I'm gonna say that again because it's vital. Through most of my life, I have believed that food was my problem. And not only was food my problem, but if I could lose weight, my problems would be solved. I bet I'm not the only one here who believes that or believed that. I hope there won't be anyone that believes that after today. Now, here's what I found out. Again, from Clancy Immisland and Don, and Joe and Charlie. Food for the compulsive overeater is never the problem. Food is the solution to the problem. Food is never the problem for the compulsive overeater. Food is the solution to the problem. And if food is the solution to the problem, then what is the problem? The problem is the buildup of everyday normal, human emotions. Now, all human beings have fear, anger, jealousy, lust, happiness, glad, sad, mad. All human beings have these emotions. It's part of who we are as people. We don't have those emotions because we're compulsive overeaters. We have those emotions because we're human beings. Now, here's the difference. In a normal human being, and you see them every day, maybe you're married to one, maybe you live with some, but you see them every day all around you. There are people that are mad or sad or glad or lustful or jealous or, or fearful, and they can dissipate these emotions by driving out a bucket of ball, golf balls, hitting some tennis balls, going to the gym, taking a hike, playing with the dog, reading a book, listening to music, and they're fine. You see them every day. They're all around you. They're all around you. And they no more understand why you eat the way you do than you understand why they don't. You just don't get it. (sighs) Now, in a normal brain, When these emotions build to a certain level, they will take those actions and they're fine. Do some yoga, you're fine, whatever. In a brain that's wired like mine, the mind will sense that there's a disturbance in the force. And the brain and the mind will say, you know what, eat a Reese's peanut butter cup. And then I say to myself, oh no, we're not eating Reese's peanut butter cups anymore. We're trying to lose weight. We want to get a girlfriend. We want to get a good job. We want to look good. We want to feel good. We don't want to be a disappointment to our doctor or ourselves. And the feelings get worse and worse and worse. And the brain says, come on, you haven't had a Reese's peanut butter cup in three hours. Certainly you've proven you're not a compulsive overeater. You can have just one Reese's peanut butter cup and the feelings intensify and get worse and worse and worse. And I eat a Reese's peanut butter cup because eating becomes a step up from where I am it becomes better than the way I feel not eating. And that's why you get people that relapse a million times because eating becomes a step up from where they are and they go to the food and not to the steps or the fellowship or the tools. This is the how and the why of the relapse. This is the how and the why of the illness and when i eat that reese's peanut butter cup for about 9 seconds i feel fantastic and my brain says see i told you why don't you listen to me and in the brain of a normal person the intelligent decision will be will win over the emotional decision the normal person's brain who's normal, will say, I'm not going to eat Reese's peanut butter cups. They make me fat. They make me sick. They give me the farts. They give me the shits. They make me look bad. I'm not eating that. I'm going to read a book. I'm going to listen to music. And the intelligence overwhelms the emotional. In the mind of an addict, the emotional will overwhelm the intelligent. We make the dumb decision, even though we know, as we've been told by Dr. Silkworth, we admit that it's injurious, we cannot tell the truth from the false. And we eat that Reese's peanut butter cup in search of relief from the untenable, unbearable pain of not eating one and we get relief. Unfortunately, here comes the other part of the disease. The physical allergy. We eat that Reese's peanut butter cup. And what happens? We trigger involuntarily. You can't not trigger it. You can't avoid triggering it. You can't not trigger it. teachers are turning over in their graves, double negative. You cannot avoid triggering the physical allergy. And I won't eat just one Reese's peanut butter cup. I will eat 20 Reese's peanut butter cups and a pizza and French fries and a hot dog from the Red Hot Ranch on Devon Avenue. And I will get Girl Scout cookies and I will get whatever and then whatever and then more of whatever. And I will be off to the races again and I will eat way more food than I had originally intended. And I will find myself even fatter. But in that microsecond I got relief from the pain of the emotional buildup in the food. And my brain says, I told you so. Now, I have a friend of mine. His name is Larry. Many of you know Larry. Larry has a daughter and his daughter has an allergy to peanuts. When she eats peanuts or peanut product, or nut products, her throat closes up and she goes into an anaphylactic shock and she has to administer an EpiPen right now, not tomorrow, not when she gets a chance, not when she gets around to it, right now. And she does not sit at home and say, I bet if I tried dry roasted peanuts, it'd be okay. Maybe I'll try unsalted peanuts. Maybe those will work. Or maybe I'll eat Cracker Jack, but I won't eat the peanuts until later. And maybe if I eat the peanuts out of the Cracker Jack later, it'll be okay. She doesn't do that. Because as a normal person, a normal non-addicted person, his daughter, Larry's daughter, knows that if she eats peanuts, she's gonna be in some serious trouble. So as a normal person, the intelligent decision will overwhelm the emotional decision. So no matter how much her anger builds, no matter how much her fear or euphoria builds or lust or anything else, jealousy or anything, she will not have this thought. I'm gonna eat peanuts that thought does not enter her head. Because as a normal person, the thought of eating peanuts is distasteful to her and she avoids it because it's flirting with death. Now, maybe our death won't come as immediately as a person with a peanut allergy consuming peanuts will, but hasn't food wrought enough pain in our lives? Hasn't food cut us off from the mainstream of life enough? Hasn't it deformed our bodies? Hasn't it made it impossible to go to the doctor without getting screamed at? Hasn't food made it so that we can't get clothes enough? Hasn't it prevented us from living life as a participant and not someone that's on the sideline enough? And yet, There we are again, if unchecked by the steps, we will go back to food because we know no other solution to the intense pain of not eating. Lack of power was our dilemma. Power over what? Power over God? No, we don't have power over God. Power over liquor? No. Power over the toxicity of our human emotions. Larry's daughter, Beth, does not sit and obsess about eating peanuts any more than I obsessed about eating decon rat poison. She knows that peanuts could kill her, or at the very least, make her very, very, very uncomfortable and so she doesn't eat them. She'll check the ingredients before eating foods. She'll demand an accounting for what is in something before putting it in her mouth, or she will not put it in her mouth. Lots of cakes, pastries, lots of different things have peanut derivatives, peanut products in them she won't eat them because she has a relationship with peanuts that is normal. We have a relationship with food that is not normal. And the problem was never the food. The problem was the buildup of everyday normal human emotion. The steps, will do for me slower, slowly, what the food does for me instantly. What is the purpose of these steps? The purpose of these steps is to affect a spiritual awakening as the result of these steps. But on the way to that, I'm going to get right with myself. I'm going to get right with God. And I'm going to get right with my fellow human beings so that the guilt and the shame and the remorse, I can't speak to lust, but the guilt and the shame and the remorse and the hatred and the fear that I have been feeling ever since I was born will be dissipated by the working of these steps so that I already feel better and my brain will not see the need to drive me irresistibly into the arms of a box of Girl Scout cookies, which leads to two to three to 10 to 20. I already feel better, and that's where the neutrality comes from. When I already feel better, my brain will not struggle with me to go eat Girl Scout cookies that's where this neutrality comes from. When you already feel better, you simply will not want the food. It will not be something that you will think about and obsess about. So if there's anything we've done today, and I know we're going slowly, I hope that we have distinguished that food was never the problem, that food was the solution to the problem, eating a hot dog at the ball game was not done because they taste so good they don't. eating eating pizza at Eastern style on tui or Gigios or, or East or uh, my pie or or Rhea's or whatever or uh, whatever it's I didn't do that because the pizza tastes so damn good although I liked it yes. I didn't do it to myself because it tasted so wonderful. I did it to myself. Because it assuaged my feelings, and I didn't have to feel the, the fear. I didn't have to feel the anger. I didn't have to feel the inadequacy. I didn't have to feel that my insides did not match up to your seemingly calm and put together outsides. I no longer had to compare myself to you after I worked the steps. And when I compare myself to you, believe me, I never came out on top. Now I can love you. I don't have to judge you. I don't have to be better than you or worse than you. I can be just another bozo on the bus. I can be what I was intended to be by birth. I am another human being seeking God's hand in the face of his one of his children, one of his suffering children, and when I reach out to another suffering compulsive overeater, and I become that outstretched hand of Overeaters Anonymous to, to the person who is still suffering, I do not feel the need to compulsively overeat any longer. The urge to do so is simply not there. And as long as I remain in fit spiritual condition, the urge to eat is simply not there. Let's finish this paragraph and we'll be done for the day. After they have succumbed to the desire again, as so many do, and the phenomenon of craving develops, they pass through the well-known stages of a spree, emerging remorseful with a firm resolution not to drink again. This is repeated over and over, and unless this person can experience an entire psychic change, spiritual awakening, there is very little hope of his recovery I need a psychic change. What is the psychic change called now? A spiritual awakening. How do I get a spiritual awakening? Through the working of the steps. I get a spiritual awakening through the working of the steps. On the other hand, and strange as this may seem to those who do not understand, once a psychic change, spiritual awakening has occurred, the very same person who seemed doomed, who had so many problems, he despaired of ever solving them, suddenly finds himself easily able to control his desire for alcohol the only effort necessary being that required to follow a few simple rules. And what are the rules? There's 12 of them. The rules are the steps. The rules are the steps. So as long as I will continue to work these steps, as long as I will continue to follow what I know to be the right thing by reaching out to others, by doing service, by doing what I need to do, calling my sponsor, being a sponsor, I will be just fine. The food will not enter my mouth because my brain will not see the need to kill me. Just to review what we've learned today, just to review what we've talked about today, we eat for an effect. We do not eat because we like the taste of peanut butter and jelly. We do not eat because we like the taste of God knows what. Yeah, it it does taste good, but that's not why we're eating it. And the truth of the matter is a lot of what we ate was just crap. A lot of what we chowed on was just pure crap. Really and truly, when you get down to it, they don't call it junk food for nothing, it's junk it's garbage mcdonald's and and all this other stuff man i used to go crazy at mcdonald's i have told you this story before when i was a kid mcdonald's was closed in the winter time that's how old i am mcdonald's all of a sudden When I was a little kid, maybe first grade or second grade, something like that, there was a big announcement that McDonald's was going to be staying open all year long. I'll tell you who pushed it was Burger King, because Burger King had seating. McDonald's didn't have any seating you couldn't sit down there and eat. They wanted you to get your food and leave. There was no phone. There was no hanging around McDonald's. They had some outdoor seating, but they wanted everything was packed to go. And then you left. And then Burger King came along and McDonald's had to change their game plan. They had to put seats in. They had to do this. They had to make it so that you could you could eat there and so on. Where was I going with this? Oh, when you really get right down to it, that stuff doesn't taste very good. It tastes like crap. It is crap. It's just garbage. It's garbage. But yet we threw our lives away for that kind of stuff. We threw our lives away for the candy bars and the Susie Q's and the Twinkies That stuff is crap. But what was it doing for us? It was giving us this effect, this sense of ease and comfort that came instantly by eating that food. And to that end, boys and girls, it was magic. Magic, because of the sugar, the fat, the fried, the dairy, whatever was in there, it worked like magic to take the edge off and give me that effect. But it also triggered the allergy, making it impossible to stop. So once the food is down, we're definitely gonna feel our feelings and that sucks. You know how they say, don't eat so much, you'll feel better. Boy, they were right. When I don't eat so much, I feel anger better. I feel fear better. I feel crushes on girls better. I feel jealousy better. I feel all these things way, way better. And as those feelings burst to the surface inside me, the urge to eat is very intensified. So instead of that, I have to work the steps. And if I want to find God, I look for God in the face of one of his children, one of us, one of his suffering children. And that's how I most easily find God. Next week, we will be meeting here in this format, and we will continue on with the doctor's opinion. I'm not going to apologize for going slowly, even though we're going really, really slowly Um, Because this is important stuff. And if we don't go through it slowly, and we don't really understand it, it becomes difficult. This is the history, not the history, this is the blood and guts of step one, the allergy of the body and the twist of the mind. Where does the twist of the mind start from? It starts from the buildup of emotions. All right, let's transition. But before we transition to Q&A, we're going to just remind you of a few things. Numeral uno, no math questions under any condition. No questions, excuse me, about math. No food questions. Let me just go over this again. If I've said fried foods or dairy or bagels or whatever. If I've said these foods and you eat them and you're safe with them and you can't understand why I'm mentioning it, I can only talk from my own experience. I cannot speak from yours. I can't eat dairy. I can't eat fried foods. I can't eat, um, sugar, I can't eat those kind of foods. Maybe you can. And if you can, namaste, namaste. No food questions, no math questions. And one thing I'm going to ask you before I turn it back over to Nancy, if you asked a question last week, hang back and let people who didn't ask one last week come to the surface. And when they're exhausted, there's no more of them, then please ask your question. All right, Nancy.